Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns, Season 3. I'm John. And I'm Robin. On this show, we break down some of the most controversial, complex, and even polarizing topics facing our society. We used honest, good faith analysis, backed by research, to form our conclusions. We promise to skew our bias towards what can be factually supported, and to make it clear when we're giving you our opinion versus speaking about actual research. We're human, we have blind spots and personal biases, and they will show up sometimes. But the goal of this show isn't to convince you to see things our way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics and present the most truthful information available so that we can discuss and address these issues in a thoughtful and beneficial way. We talk about some pretty heavy stuff on this show and we tackle topics that might feel polarizing, uh, but we do that because we have an important goal in mind. We want to change the way people have hard conversations. And we think that we can do that using research and discussion to create a common understanding. And since you're here, we hope you want the same thing. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. Fireside Breakdowns, as I said, season three. Uh, that is right. We are rolling into our third year doing this thing and couldn't be more excited about what we've got lined up for you. We've made some adjustments to our formula this season, added in some new things we're excited to try. And uh, basically, there's just a whole lot of awesome headed your way. We've also got a lot more going on over on Patreon now uh, with new content every single week and fun new perks. But more on that later. That's right. As you can tell, we are wasting absolutely no time this season. We are jumping straight into the deep end with a series about how the Supreme Court decisions that were handed down this summer could potentially affect life for all Americans. We did promise you that we'd talk about the SCOTUS Roe v. Wade, well, now Dobbs v. Jackson decision, if and when it was made final. But when we brought the subject up during our production meeting, which is the thing we can actually say this season... Uh, we quickly realized that the conversation that we wanted to have was bigger than that single decision. We feel like we saw the beginnings of a well-lined path being laid out for the United States, uh, some might even say a train track, and we're concerned about where it will lead us if we don't pay attention. So that's why we're going to start by taking a closer look at some of the decisions that were released by the Supreme Court in May and June 2022. Many of these cases were widely publicized, but some were published without much fanfare, and each and every one of them could have significant impacts on the way we live our lives from this point on. Now, specifically, we'll be looking at Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization, West Virginia v. EPA, New York State Rifle and Pistol Association v. Bruin, uh, Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, and Vega v. Teco. And I don't know that I pronounced that name right or what, but that's what I've got. Um, now, these are far from the only decisions released this summer by this court. Um, these are just the ones that we have decided to focus on, because if you took the time to look at all of them, that would make this an entirely different podcast. Yes. And many of those podcasts actually do exist. Um, but we think that these are sufficient to outline the concerning pattern that we're seeing. 
Now we're going to start by uh, outlining some of the headline cases you've probably at least heard something about, even if it was just like tangentially or in headlines. Um, though really, if you've been paying attention at all, you've you've heard some of these. Yeah, the first case probably that we yeah. yeah, I hope you've heard of all of them, at least heard of them, even if you don't yeah you know know a whole lot about them. The first case that we want to talk about is Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. The very short summary of this case begins with a law that Mississippi passed in 2018 called the Gestational Age Act. The law prohibited almost all abortions after 15 weeks. Jackson Women's Health Organization is the only licensed abortion facility in Mississippi, and one of the doctors there filed a lawsuit in federal district court challenging the law and requesting an emergency temporary restraining order. The district court granted the temporary restraining order while the litigation continued, which essentially means that the judge prevented the law from going into effect until the courts had a chance to rule on the case. The district court ended up preventing Mississippi from enforcing the law at all, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit Court affirmed that decision, which all the fighting over those finally brought the case before SCOTUS. Yeah, so we're going to, just a quick aside, probably talk about at least on the surface, the ways that cases move through our court system. Um, we're going to reference it a lot in this. We don't have a lot of time to address that, but the very short uh, story or the very short explanation is when you challenge a law, you challenge it on the local level, a local court, if they, if the parties don't agree on the outcome of that trial, one or, or both of them can move it up to usually the losing party can appeal the decision up to the circuit court. Um, and there are 13 circuit courts in the United States. Um, and that's basically like the tier below the Supreme court. And then once that court renders its decision, if the parties still aren't satisfied with the resolution, one of them can, uh, appeal it up to the Supreme court of the United States, which is, uh, where it is then like evaluated by the Supreme court. And then, they decide whether or not they take the case or they remand it back to the lower court and let the previous decision stand. Um, so that's kind of the, the pathway here. So when we talk about the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit or the Tenth Circuit or whatever, those are just the intermediary courts. Mm -hmm. Still, don't get me wrong, very, very, very important courts in the United States. Uh, but they are kind of the middle step between the local courts and the Supreme Court of the United States. So. This yes. one was appealed all the way up. And then in May of this year, a leaked version of the decision uh, caused what I think can be safely identified as a tidal wave <laughs> of concern um, when yeah. it revealed when it revealed that the court uh, likely intended to overturn both the Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood decisions that ensured women had constitutionally protected access to pregnancy termination care across the United States. In the decision, Justice Alito made the assertion that the U U.S. Constitution does not explicitly confer a woman's right to abortion. Now, objectively, that is true, but that's not some sort of early commentary about how the founding fathers like, felt about women's health care. The Constitution just doesn't mention women at all. Yeah. 
Uh, he also wrote that the right to obtain an abortion is not rooted in our nation's history and tradition and isn't an essential component of ordered liberty. Another explanation point. Another yes. break. What in the world is ordered liberty? Ah, yes. One of the many phrases that highlights the joy politicians take in being both incredibly specific and maddeningly vague at the very same time. This phrase essentially means that the decision to afford a particular right is balanced by the need for order in society. In other words, a consideration of the right to an abortion does not come down to a question of personal liberty versus an orderly country. Good? I mean, I understand the definition, but I do not agree. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I um, yeah. We're going to also say that a lot <laughs> in this whole entire series. We understand the words they're saying, uh, but we don't agree with them. Okay, so Justice Alito says that the 14th Amendment can't be understood to protect the right to an abortion because it isn't deeply rooted in America's history and tradition. Except that it is. At the time that the document was written, everything related to reproduction, including pregnancy termination, was considered mundane women's work. Nearly every community of women had both home remedies and more commercialized options for ending a pregnancy. Common law prohibited intentional termination of a pregnancy after quickening, which is when the pregnant woman first notices movement, but reporting of that feeling even was left up to the women. The law essentially could not care less about unless the pregnancy was being used as evidence of prior sin or the woman was being particularly flagrant about her decision. Anyway, I'm ranting. <laughs> The point here is that in the full text of the decision, Alito set a standard that essentially says that the 14th Amendment can't be construed to cover rights that are not explicit in the Constitution, that are not deeply rooted in American history or tradition, or that are not included in that concept of ordered liberty. He also makes a really sneaky little note that implies that it may not cover acts that were considered criminal when the amendment was passed, but uh, we're at, we'll get into that in the next episode. Yeah. Another case, moving on, just moving straight on. Another case that we want to Roll. talk about in this episode is West Virginia v. EPA. So, yes, the EPA, as in the Environmental Protection Agency, mm -hmm. um, among the many regulations repealed by the Trump administration was the 2015 Clean Power Plan, which established guidelines for states to limit carbon dioxide emissions from power plants. In its stead, the administration, the Trump administration, uh, issued the Affordable Clean Energy, ACE, rule, which either completely removed or deferred these guidelines. That was unpopular. And the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit vacated the ACE rule as arbitrary and capricious. In relatively layman's terms, um, that means that the Court of Appeals failed to find uh, a, a rational connection between the <laughs> facts found and the choice made by a given administrative agency. Is yeah. that a legal speak way of saying something is nonsense? Because if it is, I'm definitely using that the next time that somebody pops off in a Facebook comment. It definitely means that what you have just said flies in the face of reality and 
it is dumb. Why did you do that? Yeah. Nonsense. I dig it. Um, yeah. So in this case, the court determined the ACE rule was unreasonable and failed to consider the facts and circumstances around the establishment of the rule. Therefore, the rule was thrown out. Good riddance to bad rubbish. But then the North American Coal Corporation challenged the Environmental Protection Agency's authority to broadly regulate greenhouse gas emissions in the way that the Clean Power Plan laid out, which brought the case to the Supreme Court. I wish I could say that it was surprising that this suit came from a coal company, but it isn't. Just it isn't. Anyway, the question brought before the court was, does the EPA have the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions in virtually any industry so long as it considers considers cost, non-air impacts, and energy requirements? Which savvy listeners may automatically identify as a pretty significant chunk of the EPA's responsibilities. Yeah, I actually had to read that question twice because it's written so broadly that it almost feels like a parody. They're essentially asking, does the EPA have the authority to do any of the things it does? Yeah, you'd think that it's right there in the name, Environmental Protection Agency. Does the EPA have the authority to protect the environment? And moving on, SCOTUS concluded that Congress didn't grant the EPA the authority to devise emissions caps based on the generation-shifting approach used in the Clean Power Plan. The court argued that the EPA must be able to point to clear congressional authorization in cases where the history and breadth of the authority that the agency has asserted and the economic and political significance of of that assertion provide a reason to hesitate before concluding that Congress meant to confer such authority. So basically, I paraphrased what they decided there. I'm going to re-paraphrase it because that's such an un... Like, it's hard to, to condense this stuff. But basically, it says... The, the court was like, hey, EPA, you really, really need to be able to point to where Congress specifically said you can do this because it's going to have a very large... Uh, economic and political impact, what you are doing. Um, and because of that impact, we're going to like pump the brakes a little. So that's, that's where that comes from. So in this case, the EPA couldn't point to that clear congressional authorization. Somebody forgot to write a follow-up email. Uh, no, but in, in all seriousness, this decision sets a pretty high bar for any federal agency to be able to exercise any practical authority. And it might give Congress, or more accurately, the controlling party in Congress, room to pull back authority from federal agencies, saying that it never meant to confer that authority in the first place. Joy. Now we've got, I think we've got time for one more big headline case. So shall we talk about the New York State Rifle? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. I will, um, I'll take the background here because uh, I don't, you have feelings. You have feelings about (laughs) this one. (laughs) So the basis of this case is that New York state's requirement for a person to show a special need for self-protection in order to receive an unrestricted license to carry a concealed firearm outside the home. Two men, Robert Nash and Brandon Koch, 
challenged the law after New York rejected their concealed carry applications based on their failure to show proper cause. Uh, and then a district court promptly dismissed Nash and Koch's claims, and the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit affirmed that decision. They fought about it. And yeah, then because they were not satisfied with it and because, frankly, they knew that they had a friendly Supreme Court, they brought the case yeah. to the Supreme Court with the question, does New York's law requiring that applications for unrestricted concealed carry licenses demonstrate a special need for self-defense? Does that violate the Second Amendment? And the court here held that New York's proper cause requirement violates the 14th Amendment by preventing law-abiding citizens with ordinary self-defense needs from exercising their Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms in public for self-defense. Which is a really, like, if the question is, does this violate the Second Amendment, and you come back to me with, well, it violates the 14th Amendment, I'm going to be like, but that's not what I asked. Right. <laughs> like, I asked mm. about the Second yeah. Um, and they're trying to say that it violates the 14th, which then in turn mm -hmm. violates the second. And I don't. Mm. Anyway, <clears throat> the decision noted that the right to carry a firearm is deeply rooted in history, mm -hmm. which I, I guess illustrates how long something has to be around before the Supreme Court decides it's part of our nation's history. 50 years just doesn't cut it despite 50 years being fully 20% of the history of the United States, but I digress. No, wait, one more point. I guess this means that we can remove all of those Confederate monuments because the Confederacy only lasted like a little over four years, <laughs> making it essentially meaningless by this standard. Okay, okay. Uh -huh, uh -huh. We're back on it now. Okay. The court stated that no other constitutional right requires showing any, quote, special need in order to exercise it, hmm. though some restrictions may be appropriate in sensitive places. But Manhattan is not, according to the court, such a sensitive place. Gun restrictions are constitutional only if there is a tradition of those regulations in U.S. history. <sighs> Let's just pause to take in that last statement, shall we? This is a very clear positioning by the conservative court, all of whom will retain their seats until they die or are impeached, that under their watch, there is essentially no constitutional basis for the restriction of guns. None of the restrictions that make sense today are rooted in tradition. Which does make one wonder how we are supposed to establish new traditions if the Supreme Court can just strike down anything they don't personally agree with. Anyway, we're grumpy. Justice Alito about this can. I'm, I'm salty. I'm very salty about yeah. a lot of, of, of these decisions because I feel like the logic is inconsistent. Agreed. There's no, there's no consistent through line. There is very clearly a I have an agenda. Mm -hmm. And most of the dissenting justices also agree with you. That was one pretty recurring comment in the dissents on these cases is this doesn't make any sense. But. But anyway, so Justice Alito concurred with this this idea that um, these things aren't deeply rooted in tradition, arguing that the effect of guns on American society is irrelevant to the issue about the regulations. Hmm. 
Yeah, I found it really interesting in this particular conversation that there is no discussion here about ordered liberty or balancing the right to bear arms with the need for an ordered society. Because if we have to balance unrestricted access to guns with the overall welfare of society, um, that, that, that takes this whole question to another level. Again, that's the logic. I can hear the counter argument right now. Well, hammers kill more people a year than guns. Yeah, and cows kill more people than sharks, but nobody in their right mind would argue that a cow is actually a better predator than a shark. Sorry. It's, it's, it's called exposure bias. It's because you have more things. Like there are hammers more readily available yeah. than guns. It, we need it's to a whole talk thing, about guys. exposure bias because that's a, it is the basis for a lot of these um, illogical but also really bad faith arguments. We need to talk about that at some point. Yep. <laughs> We're staying focused, guys. This is season three. We are tight. We are focused. We are getting in and out of these podcasts for your benefit. Yes. Okay. So Kavanaugh and Roberts authored a further opinion stating that background checks, firearms training, mental health record checks, and fingerprinting are still permissible because they are, they, they are objective unlike the subjective nature of having to prove a need, which is odd because I really don't remember the tradition of fingerprinting people in 1776. Mm -mm. Uh, just putting it out there. Mm. Um, yeah, it's, 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 as I said previously, salty about how flimsy these arguments are on their face, on their face. Yeah, I, and we, we are not... We are not legal scholars here, guys. We're just good at doing our research. And even we can see how how flimsy and how how illogical these arguments are. Admittedly, there's a lot to be upset about in these cases from this summer, even in the ones that didn't earn as much media attention. Such as Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta, for example. Exactly. First, I'm angry that this case didn't get the coverage that the others that we already mentioned got. And I'm angry that I'm not surprised. Uh, we'll get into the actual case momentarily here, but before we do, we have a couple of notes. Um, a, this is one of those situations where you have to ignore the guy who brought the case or the guy in whose name the case was brought. He did bad, bad things. There seems to be no question there. But the crux of this case isn't actually about him. It's about the conflict that he represents. So we're not going to talk much about Castro Huerta or the original case because it doesn't essentially matter to this decision the way it came out. Um, and number two, because this decision has to do with the sovereignty of Native American tribal nations, there is a specific context to this case that the two of us just cannot speak to effectively nor should we try. Instead of adding much of our own commentary in this case, we're going to share the perspective of Elizabeth Hidalgo Reese, who is a member of the Nambe Pueblo Reservation. Uh, she is the first Native American faculty member at Stanford Law School and the first, quote, enrolled citizen of a Native nation to have a tenure track appointment at a top three law school. She is uniquely qualified to comment on this case, and we're going to let her do so. <laughs> right. Um, so here's what you need to know. 
In 2015, Victor Manuel Castro Huerta was charged by the state of Oklahoma for neglect of his stepdaughter. He was convicted and sentenced to 35 years in prison. He appealed, and while that case was pending, SCOTUS decided McGirt v. Oklahoma. McGirt was an absolute blockbuster case in which the court held that Congress never disestablished the boundaries of the Muscogee or Creek Nation formerly uh, or form which was formed, excuse me, via treaty with the United States government. In Oklahoma, the Cherokee, Choctaw, Seminole, and Creek nations had identical treaty promises and legal claims. So the decision of McGirt effectively reinstated the eastern half of Oklahoma as part of reservations as Indian country. The question at hand in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta is whether a state has authority to prosecute non-Indians who commit crimes against Indians in Indian country. So you see, Castro Huerta is not native, but his stepdaughter is. The Indian Country Crimes Act, also called the General Crimes Act, 18 U.S.C. 1152, uh, mandates that federal courts, not states, have jurisdiction when offenses of a certain magnitude are committed by Indians against non-Indian victims. And for all offenses committed by non-Indians against Indian victims on land that is considered Indian country. But uh, apparently we're not doing that anymore. In Castro Huerta, Justice Kavanaugh wrote, This court has long held that Indian country is part of a state, not separate from it. As a matter of state sovereignty, a state has jurisdiction over all of its territory, including Indian country. Except that it doesn't. Uh, Reese called the decision unmoored from the key cases of federal Indian law and divorced from the realities of American history. Justice Gorsuch, who wrote the majority decision in McGirt and a dissent in Castro Huerta, said, truly a more ahistorical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom. The idea that a state always retains jurisdiction over all of its territory, including native tribal lands, sets a precedent for a complete undermining of a tribal nation's ability to govern itself. And it undermines the authority of the federal government on Indian lands by giving the state permission to step in and handle cases that would otherwise be reserved for federal courts. <laughs> It also ignores the fact, it ignores the fact that there is the Bureau of Indian Affairs, which is a distinct law enforcement agency whose purpose is to enforce the law on Indian country, like in yeah. Indian country. That is their job. Like, what? What? Yeah. Yeah. So are you seeing a theme here? Because yet another case this is, rather, yet another case that elevates the power of the states beyond a reasonable understanding and over the jurisdiction of the federal government. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But honestly, that is not what makes me the most angry about this case. <laughs> Reading through the decision, the part that stuck out to me the most was this. Kavanaugh wrote... You can just put a period after Kavanaugh and then oh God, done. He, I Sorry, swear. I couldn't. I, I, I tried had, to hold it back. Yeah, I had to put a note in the in the show notes because this was maybe one of the most condescending pieces of legal legal 
bullshit that I have I've ever read. He just oozes asshole, especially in this document. And I don't even feel guilty saying it. I wish that he could yeah. prove me wrong, but he's not. So he no, wrote he sounds like a guy who has never had any experience with with the 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 role and the history of the indigenous peoples of this country and what what their life and culture is all about now like just it was he wrote the question of whether the state of oklahoma retains concurrent jurisdiction to prosecute non-indian on indian crimes in indian country has suddenly assumed immense importance a question that until now was relatively insignificant in the real world what world does he think Native American people are living in? Of all the pompous bullshit things that I have read in the last little while, like this has to take the cake. Who the flap does he think that he is? But honestly, my anger in this situation is irrelevant. What matters more is how this completely dismisses the lived reality of Native Americans. As Reese explained, for a group that struggles with so much invisibility and erasure, this word choice is painful. And the statement itself is inaccurate. In fact, these rules have mattered a great deal for Native people living on Indian reservations. For Native people, the chaos of overlapping sovereign authority and neglect has created a crisis where crime often goes unpunished by governments, state and federal, that do not adequately prioritize us. Like I said, I'm not surprised. But this just adds to the troublesome precedent that was set this summer. Another, as much as we would like to continue to lambast this particular case, moving on, because right. there's more. Because there's more. Um, another case that really, it really concerned us uh, in this batch um, was Vega v. Uh, Teco. Now, we're running out of time already, and I can tell you we're not going to get to another case that we really wanted to talk about, which was Shin v. Ramirez. Um, so we'll hit this one very quickly, and then we'll save the conversation on Shin v. Ramirez for Patreon. Yeah. So if you want to hear us talk about that, we'll talk about it in a minute. Terrence Tako was working as a patient's transporter in an L.A. hospital when a patient accused him of sexual assault. Again, we would like to remind everyone that the significance of these cases often goes far beyond the acts of the individuals involved. <laughs> uh, yeah. Deputy Carlos Vega questioned Tako at the hospital, but did not read him his Miranda rights. And then at the end of that interrogation, Tako produced a statement of apology. Later during his trial, that statement was presented as evidence against him. So, so I'm going to put, hold, let me put on my badge here and my, my law enforcement hat that I actually have and wore for a while. Mm -hmm. If you fail to read a person, their Miranda rights, when you arrest them, it is not an oopsie. It is a big deal entire cases have been thrown out because somebody a, a police officer failed to mirandize somebody 
And that's what they call it. That's what you two Mirandais. Um, so yeah, it it's not like a oh no, he forgot to give him his Miranda rights, but you know, he confessed anyway. Like honestly, that should have been the end of the case. Mm-hmm. I don't understand why this one progressed as far as it did uh, to this point. Um, because legit, like, no joke, we spent weeks getting it drilled into our heads that the first thing you do when you're arresting somebody, not after the cuffs are on, while you are doing it, is you have somebody there. You don't memorize it. I mean, everybody's got it memorized, but you don't memorize it. You read it off of a card so you make sure that the words are exactly right and that the defense lawyer can't find some way that you messed up because you memorized it wrong and use that to negate the entire case. Okay, that's how important it is. So there is a lot of disagreement about the circumstances under which the statement, the confession, uh, the statement of apology, excuse me, uh, was produced. Vega and another officer claimed that the tone of the questioning was conversational and that the statement was made willingly. Teiko maintains that the situation was hostile and that he was effectively coerced into making the statement. <laughs> and an expert on coerced confessions agreed whether or not Teiko was ever officially in police custody wasn't determined either. There are so many red flags going Just off for everywhere. me, guys. Like, even, even in, in when, when I was trained, when we were having these, quote-unquote, casual conversations with people, right? We had to make it clear to them that they were free to go, that they weren't under arrest, we weren't detaining them, because even wearing the uniform in and of itself is a show of force to 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 most people because you represent authority so even a casual conversation with a police officer can be perceived as coercion mm -hmm. because you are the 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 force that enforces the law and it is not okay to not be clear about what your motives and what you are doing with a, a, a civilian is when you're talking to them, at least for good cops. <laughs> right. Like I'm I am baffled by the idea that nobody is really sure if he was actually under arrest. Uh, that feels to me like everyone's very sure he was being detained in a way that was not okay. But yeah. Takeo was eventually acquitted. Uh, but he still sued Vega for violating his civil rights, specifically his... She did. Yeah. Specifically his Fifth Amendment right not to incriminate himself by not Mirandizing him before they questioned him. The case bounced around the lower courts for long enough to make it to SCOTUS this year, where the court held... That failure to outline Miranda rights does not, in fact, constitute a violation of someone's civil rights under that very specific way. That is literally 180 degrees specifically contradictory to the training I had at federal law enforcement training. Yeah. 100% contradictory. Yep. So... 
help us understand for a second why this one's a big deal, especially for folks who don't plan on getting arrested anytime soon. Okay. So, for a lot of reasons. First, uh, there's the chilling effect that this will likely have on law enforcement accountability. So John M. Greenbaum, chief counsel for the Lawyers Committee for Civil Rights under law, pointed out through this case, the court has once again limited the ways in which people can be held accountable when they commit misconduct. And I said people, I meant police has once again limited the ways in which police can be held accountable when they commit misconduct. After today, people can no longer sue law enforcement for purposefully violating their Miranda rights, resulting in officers acting with impunity for their unlawful actions. Again, I cannot overstate how messed up this is. Miranda is such an important case. Mm -hmm. They're called Miranda rights because they were established by a different Supreme Court case, guys. Like, (laughs) more importantly, in our opinion, uh, this is another decision in which the conservative majority on the court undermined a long-held understanding, rejecting an aspect of a previous decision, in this case, Dickerson v. United States, um, that created constitutional or constitution adjacent access to certain rights for more than 55 years miranda v arizona there it is that's the case has provided preventative protection for those interacting with law enforcement because of this decision the teeth of that protection have been removed and i strongly encourage everybody to go read the decision from miranda v arizona because you again i literally am in shock at this decision based on my own experience it does not make any any sense no and the fact that that this one of all of them that we talked about i feel like this one got the least amount of coverage like nobody talked about this one and i think that's because it's incredibly terrifying it it no it 100 is because it's it has effectively made the miranda warning optional right that's it. Like, yeah, oh, no, I, I, I forgot. But according to this case that was just decided, it doesn't really matter. It's not a really it's not a violation of his civil rights. Right. And it, there's some discussion in the decision about how, rights. well, oh, this doesn't rights. actually affect whether or not um, a failure to read Miranda rights will can affect uh, a case like you were saying, get it thrown out at the, at the beginning. Right. Whether that kind of procedural default can affect the outcome of a case. But Failing to Mirandize somebody doesn't provide grounds for a civil rights lawsuit. Like we can throw it out. We can throw cases out on procedural basis, but you don't have any civil rights claims here. Like it's it's a whole lot. We just talked about a whole lot. That was some rapid fire discussion of really heavy issues. So let's take a minute or two here to sum up the pattern that we think that we see. We've got a few big concerns with the potential implications of the decisions that we talked about in this episode. (laughs) Which you may not, may or may not have picked up on. I don't know. Yeah, we weren't Um, very clear about it. Yeah. And now many of these cases roll back protections that have been understood to be either constitutional or deeply entrenched rights for many years. They also represent in in most cases, a deliberate push to limit the authority of the federal government. 
And finally, the decisions themselves set concerning standards that clearly shift the way we determine what rights are and what aren't granted to us as a foundation of our citizenship. Lest you think we are catastrophizing here. Ooh, very good. In the next episode, we're going to walk you through exactly why we feel this way using the 14th Amendment as an example. Conservatives have long resented the expansion of rights under the umbrella of the 14th, and it has become a key battleground for conversations about what exactly we are at liberty to do. I'm it's it's um, it's a good it's good. It's a good one, guys. Um, if you would like to listen to that right now. You can do that. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The next episode in this series is already uploaded, currently available, mm-hmm. but only, only if you subscribe to our Patreon. Yeah. That's right. This, <laughs> this season, Fireside Breakdown Season 3, Yeah, we're recording one week ahead. Sometimes mostly. Um, <laughs> sometimes mostly um which means that we have the next episode queued up and ready to go and if you're a subscriber to our patreon uh you can roll into that immediately um get a week ahead um so obviously it will still be in the regular queue next monday uh, after you listen to this it will still be freely provided also in our patreon we are going to have several mini episodes, one for each full length episode that we do. You'll notice that the episodes this year, um, this season are generally shorter. Hopefully we're trying to keep them in that 45 minute mark. We're going to yeah, come yeah. really close <laughs> on this one. Um, but there is additional information found in these mini episodes for each episode, about 15 minutes worth of content, usually something related to, but not critical uh, for what we're talking about, uh, which again, you can get access to uh, by subscribing to our Patreon. Yeah. You can also find us at firesidebreakdowns.com where you can read all of the notes that and the show notes and see all of our sources. Uh, you can uh, find every podcast episode. You can reach out to us to, directly and you can find links to all of our socials. You can also find a link to leave us a review. If you would please leave us a review. Five stars is preferable. Um, I mean, that's the going does, rate right now. Yeah, right. It does, in fact, uh, bring more traffic to the podcast because it moves uh, Fireside Breakdowns up in visibility. So when people are just randomly browsing for a podcast, the algorithm, we have an episode on that, will throw it up in front of them if there are more positive reviews. So please, please, please help us help you. Yes, I think yes. that's everything important. Shall we do some good news? I would love to talk about some good news. Um, and I chose this one specifically because it is personally significant to me. We try not to let our bias get too out of hand around here, uh, but I'm calling this one good news. The Biden administration has sent out clear guidance to hospitals that they must provide abortion services if the life of the mother is at risk. That seems really, really common sense, uh, but it had to be done. The, medical, the Emergency Medical Treatment and Active Labor Act, established in 1986, requires medical facilities to determine whether a person seeking treatment may be in labor at any stage of pregnancy, 
And then whether they are experiencing an emergency health situation or a situation that could develop into an emergency. That's very key. The Department of Health and Human Services guidance earlier this week clarified that if a physician believes that a pregnant patient presenting at an emergency department is experiencing an emergency medical condition as defined by EMTALA, and that abortion is the stabilizing treatment necessary to resolve that condition, the physician must provide that treatment. When a state law prohibits abortion and does not include an exception for the life of the pregnant person or draws the exception more narrowly than EMTALA's emergency medical condition definition, then that state law is preempted. This is a really big deal because many states, like Texas, uh, will soon ban all abortions from the moment of fertilization with very narrow exceptions only to save the life of a pregnant patient or prevent, quote, substantial impairment of major bodily function. Now, before Roe was repealed, doctors would typically perform an abortion and any other treatments needed to keep the patient healthy. But under many state laws, what we're seeing now is uh, physicians quickly found themselves faced with this conundrum. When is a patient sick enough to warrant life-saving care? Can a doctor provide care as soon as it's understood what the remedy should be? Or does the doctor first have to let the patient reach a point of severe illness or even emergency to avoid legal liability? Yeah. Um, as somebody who personally benefited from my doctor's ability to make that decision without having to weigh the risk of losing her medical practice or being sued, my heart was really heavy for women who would potentially see their physical and mental health, which is very rarely considered in these situations, put at unnecessary risk because politicians don't understand science. And before people tell me that, oh, this isn't happening, it's not happening, there are reports from all across essentially the South of doctors being um, afraid to treat patients, turning people away, sending them home to potentially have a natural miscarriage, knowing that the result could be a life-threatening infection, right? Like this is happening. And so- I know that in Virginia, there are some hospitals that are refusing to perform abortions that are currently legal because they might be illegal mm -hmm. in the future. Yeah, it's- because they're scared of, of the legal repercussions. Right. Because doctors are who already pay an incredible amount of money in malpractice insurance and have to jump so, through so many legal hoops are adding one more layer of fear and liability to that conversation. Um, so the Biden administration's guidance that reassured essentially the nation's doctors that they don't need to wait until a patient's health deteriorates before acting. Um, and that they can act in cases where non-treatment would eventually result in serious impairment. In my case, uh, there was an embryo trying to grow on my actual ovary. That was never going to turn out okay. So my doctor was yeah. then able to uh, do what she needed to do to manage that so that I stayed healthy. Because otherwise I would have been seriously impaired. And now hopefully is... doctors can do that going forward for now. Yeah. That was that that is an ectopic pregnancy. That is right? an ectopic like, pregnancy, yes. Right. And so I think there's 
<laughs> science corner right now, ectopic pregnancy is any pregnancy that implants outside of the uterus, if I understand correctly, mm -hmm. um, which doesn't necessarily mean like, oh, it's like on the on the ovary, like in Robin's case, it can mean in the fallopian tube. Yep. Which will also lead to severe complications and, and death. It can also mean somewhere in the abdominal cavity. Yeah. Because bodies are weird. Bodies get real weird. Real yeah. weird. So, and in 0% of these cases, under current medical science, can that embryo be moved into the uterus? It just, it's, it, we cannot it's do it. It's not a thing. Every single one of you those pregnancies is untenable. They are completely non-viable and always a threat to the life of the pregnant person. Yep. Always. Yep, 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 yep. Um, anyway, of course, Texas uh, <laughs> sued the administration pretty much immediately, saying that the Department of Health and Human Services is encroaching on the state's sovereignty. God damn um, it. <laughs> again, that push towards removing power from federal agencies. Yeah. But at least for now, there should be no confusion as to whether or not a woman can receive appropriate care in case of uh, a current or inevitable emergency. It still means some weird stuff. Lawyers getting involved in healthcare decisions. Yeah. Panels of doctors having to sign off on something, slowing down treatment. People are still going to straight up die. Like, I'm not going to sugarcoat it. People are still going to die. This is still unacceptable, but it's something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, on that cheery note, we're going to wrap it up, tie it off. Uh, right around 50 minutes on this one. Hey, so we got to close out. Um, so again, you can find next week's episode on our Patreon. You can find some bonus content on our Patreon. Uh, but if you choose not to do that, also wonderful. You will hear us back in your ear holes one week from today. I like that one because it makes Robin cringe every time. Oh, uh, until, until next week, guys. Take care of each other. <laughs>